Now, as we begin tonight in Revelation chapter 5, there's something you should know about this chapter, is that it comes right after Revelation chapter 4. And actually, it flows quite seamlessly from chapter 4 to chapter 5. At the beginning of Revelation chapter 4, the Apostle John was taken up in the Spirit to heaven. And he saw this incredible scene of which the centerpiece was the throne of God. We talked about that last week. Dominating the the whole environment, dominating uh, John's description, dominating everything is the throne of God. He talks about who's on the throne, what's around the throne, what's in front of the throne, what's uh, above the throne. Everything is described regarding its relationship to the throne of God. Now, Revelation chapter 5 begins with that same idea, because John's still in the same scene. If we were filming this, you wouldn't have a camera fade and then focus again between Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. They run right into each other. Now, chapter 5 verse 1 begins with the throne, but as the chapter develops, you're going to see that the focus turns to something that the Lord God who sits upon the throne holds in his hand. Let's check it out here. Revelation 5.1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now again, the the focus of Revelation chapter 4 was the throne. And here the Apostle John begins with a reference to the throne, but he shifts his focus now to the scroll that's held in the right hand of the enthroned Lord. The first thing he tells us about this scroll is that it is written on the inside and on the back. Now this means that this scroll is unusual. It wasn't common practice to write on both sides of a scroll. Now, sometimes they would do it. It wasn't like it was unheard of to do this, but it wasn't normal practice. Do you know why you would only write on the back side of a scroll or on the outside, not just the inside? You'd only write on the outside of it if you ran out of room. If you had so much to describe, so many words that it couldn't fit just on the inside of the scroll. Ancient scrolls were read horizontally, not vertically. Most of us don't realize this, that the scroll would be rolled up. Now, it's not as if they would hold it horizontally and unroll it like this. Actually, they would hold it vertically, and then they would unroll it from left to right, letting some out on one end, gathering it up on the other end, and they would read it as it went on. Now, the the, the text would be on the scroll in about three-inch columns. And again, this is typical. There's always variation, but this is just typical. Three-inch columns that ran vertically up and down the scroll. And so you read a column, read another column, move the scroll, read it. That's how it would work in using a scroll in the ancient world. So you can see why they would customarily just write on the inside. You would have to need a lot of room to write on the outside. Now, a typical scroll, for example, if you were to put the book of Revelation on a typical ancient scroll, it would make for a scroll about 15 feet long. And you would just roll it and unroll it, and that's how you would read the scroll. So that's the first thing we know about this scroll, is it's jam-packed with information. Secondly, look at it here in verse 1, it's sealed with seven seals. Now, when a scroll that was more than just an ordinary writing, when it was an official document of some kind that was going to be sealed... When they were done with the scroll, finished writing it, they would roll it up into one roll. They would tie strings around the scroll. And then where the knots were, they would put a blob of wax, hot wax, and a signet upon it to seal the scroll. This is exactly what John sees. Now, it's not like there's one string with seven globs of wax on it. What you have is seven strings going up and down the measure of the scroll, each one of the strings having the blob of wax upon the proper place of the scroll to seal the scroll. Now, the idea is simply this. You can't open the scroll until all the seals are removed. 
It's not as if you open one and then you can read a little bit. You open the next one, you can read a little bit more. No, it doesn't work like that. You have to remove all the seals and all the strings or you can't read the scroll. So here we have it now. You have this scroll written with seven seals on the inside and in the back. Here's where the Bible commentators love to get into it. What is this scroll? You know, the Bible does not specifically tell us. It simply doesn't tell us. It's very important, as you're going to see later on in the chapter. This is a very important document that sits in the hand of the Lord God and thrown to the heavens. But as for what it is specifically, well, we aren't told. Through the centuries, commentators have suggested many, many different ideas. Now, it's important to remember that no matter what is on this scroll, no one except Jesus is worthy to open it. I just gave away something here that we're going to find out later on in the chapter, but I I trust you'll forgive me for that. Only Jesus is worthy to open up this scroll. Now, remember that, because I'll throw out what some of the interpretations of this has been through the century, and we'll measure it against what the text says. Some people think that this scroll is the Old Testament, or the Old and the New Testaments together, or that it's fulfilled prophecy from the Bible. But these things look back, and John is speaking of things that are to come. And let me ask you this. If that scroll is the Old Testament or the Old and the New Testament, then how come nobody's worthy to open it? You've got it open right in front of you right now. So it doesn't fit that it would be the Old Testament or the New Testament. Some people think that the scroll is God's claim of divorce against Israel. But there's very little scriptural evidence for this idea. And especially, it's mostly propounded by people who believe that God is finished with Israel as Israel. And they believe in replacement theology, where the idea is, well, God is no longer dealing with Israel. The church replaces Israel, and the church is the new Israel. By the way, if that were the case, who would be unworthy to open that scroll? Thirdly, some people think that the scroll is God's sentence against the enemies of the church. In other words, God looks at the persecutors of the church and he writes out his sentence against them and he holds it in his hand. But again, let me ask you, who is unworthy to open that scroll? It doesn't make sense. Some people think that the scroll is the text of the book of Revelation or at least the next several chapters. But again, this is rather unlikely considering how the idea of this scroll is communicated. And again, who is unworthy to open that scroll? We've opened it right now. Some people think that the scroll, and this is probably the, the second best solution. I'll give you what I believe it is in just a moment. I'll give you what I second best solution. Some people think that the scroll is the title deed to the planet Earth. Now, this is an attractive idea because especially in the coming chapters of the book of Revelation, there's going to come a time of great tribulation which will conclude with Jesus Christ ruling with he reigning on planet earth, in a sense taking back earth for the kingdom of God. The problem with the theory is that it's hard to demonstrate it with certainty. The best connection with the idea seems to be a passage in Jeremiah chapter 32, which describes Jewish title deeds as being sealed documents. But we really don't, the seven seals or written on the inside of back just doesn't really seem to fit. In addition, there's no doubt that the earth already belongs to the Lord, doesn't it? That's what Psalm 24, 1 says. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. And even though it's true, we could say that the governments of this world belong to Satan. At the same time, uh, Jesus Christ is going to win him back. And I don't know when God ever lost title deed to planet earth. No, God holds this scroll. It isn't lost, right? He's not out looking for the scroll. He's not out trying to find it. He's got it right in his hand. But the scroll must be opened and it must be revealed. Well, I'll give you what I think is the best idea to this. And might I say, take everything I'm saying here with the green. If it was really all that important that we knew what the scroll was, can I tell you a little secret here of understanding the Bible? It would tell us. I think the best solution is to see the scroll as God's will his final settlement of the affairs of the universe. And I think this would have been crystal clear to somebody in John's day who read it. I think they would have recognized the description immediately. Because customarily, under Roman law, 
A will, and I mean as in a last will and testament, a will was sealed with seven seals. And each one of the seals would be from a witness to the validity of the will. In other words, when it came time for you to make out your will, you'd have to get seven trusted friends around. You'd write out the document, roll it up, tie the strings around it, and each one of your friends would put their signet seal in the wax. That scroll with seven seals was your last will and testament. Matter of fact, we have ancient documents from the Caesars Augustus and Vespasian saying that their uh, wills were seven sealed documents. At the bottom line, I think what this is all about is this is God's way of saying, this is the way I am going to work out the rest of human history. This is God's scroll for the disposition, the the way things are going to work out, because really, that's what a will is all about, right? This is my will being exercised. Now, in the particular case of a last will and testament, the person is dead and their will continues to be exercised. We know that's not the case with the Lord God. He's living, but still here is the declaration of his will for human history, and here it is, and, and that's why it's so full. God's plan for humanity, it really is a scroll written on the front and the back. And might I say, too, that only he can open it. The idea here is that God has a book in which the history of the universe is already written. And he has written the history of the universe in advance. And he holds in his hand the history of the world in advance. And he initiates the consummation of all history. Friends, only God can hold that scroll. You can hold the Bible, but you can't hold in your hand the outworking of God's plan for all of human history and all of the history of creation. There's no way you can hold that. That's something for the sovereign Lord alone to hold in his hand. But we have to say that this, this emphasis in Revelation chapter 5 is not so much on the content of the scroll, although I think John made it abundantly clear and people would have recognized it by it being a seven-sealed document. That's not the emphasis. The emphasis is more on the seals itself, which will develop in coming chapters, and the one who is worthy to take the scroll. Like, look at it in here in verse 2. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? It's as if this angel issues a challenge. He he declares a a challenge for all the universe, all creation. Okay, whoever is worthy to open the scroll, you come forward. Come on, is there any created being? Is there any angel in heaven? Is there any demon in hell? Is there any created being on earth or, or in the universe? You come forward now and open the scroll if you're able to. But what's the response? Verse 3, And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. Now, when it says that they could not look at it, it doesn't mean that you couldn't look at the scroll that was all rolled up. That means you couldn't open it up and read it. Why? Because you weren't worthy to unloose the seals. And if you don't unloose the seals, you can't read the scroll. So here's the point. The, the, the angel looks around and he says, there's no one, no one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth is able to open the scroll or look at it. John could not have said it any stronger. It's as if the strong angel looked over the entire universe to find a created being who was worthy and he had not found anyone, anyone worthy to open or to look at the scroll. Now, th- there's no answer to the strong angel's challenge. Because the creation is utterly incapable of deciding or affecting its own destiny. In other words, we can't write our own future. We can't write our own history, but God can write it. He's got it written right there up in heaven. He holds it in his hand. But God can write it. No angel can write their own history in advance. No no man, no animal, no thing in God's creation can do that. Someone above the order of the created must determine the course of history, and only God can unfold this plan. Only God can open up this scroll. So no one comes forth. No created being comes forth is able to open this scroll. And what's John's reaction? Look at here at verse 4. So I wept much. Because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. John's weeping is probably because of the previous promise to see the future. Well, it just might be denied now. 
or, or more likely, the, the, the consummation of history is indefinitely postponed. I mean, until that scroll is open, we don't know how it's going to work out. It's as if John is crying out with all of his heart, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And it's like, well, he can't come until we unfold this scroll. I mean, it, this has all the answers in it. We've got to open it up. It, it, it's all lying within the scroll. And, well, nobody can open it. And John says, then Jesus is never going to come. No wonder he's crying. He's weeping. He's weeping. Who's going to do it? You see, to look upon the scroll, someone must have the right to open the scroll and to possess it. And no creature was found worthy. So look at it here, verse 5. But one of the elders said to me. Now, do we remember these elders from last week? John described for us this scene in heaven where there was this majestic throne of God and around the throne of God, meaning around on the floor in front of the throne of God, were 24 thrones with 24 elders sitting in those thrones. And we discussed it last week and spoke about the idea that these elders are representatives of all of God's redeemed. They're not angelic beings. They're human beings and representatives of all the redeemed. It's as if all the redeemed is represented before God's throne in these 24 elders. Now, there's a huge company of the redeemed as well in front of that throne, but here, here are their representatives, so to speak. One of the elders, again, verse 5, But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Well, that's good news, isn't it? The elder comes up to him, John, John, don't cry. There's someone who can open the scroll. There's someone who can do it. You can almost say, John, well, who is it? And the elder says, well, I'll tell you who it is. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. I want you to see this. Because here we have two great figures from Old Testament prophecy. First of all, Jesus described as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. This is a messianic title that echoes all the way back to Genesis chapter 49, although there's also intimations of it in Isaiah 31 and Hosea 11. But in Genesis 49 is this first uh, prophecy of, uh, it was uh, actually Jacob speaking to uh, his, uh, one of his sons, Judah, and speaking to him about his future, and describing the Messiah that would come for him as a lion's cub or as a lion's whelp. And from long time distance, the rabbis, the scholars had understood that this is a prophecy. This lion from the tribe of Judah would be the Messiah himself. One old, old commentator says that the lion is a fitting image of our Messiah for five reasons, or actually four reasons. The first one, he says, is because of the excellency of his strength. Lions are very strong animals, aren't they? Secondly, he says, it's a fitting image of Messiah because the lion has a heroical spirit. Lions are bold and courageous. Then he says, lions are fitting as a picture of the Messiah because of their principality. In other words, the lions are the king of the beasts. And finally, he says that the lion is a fitting picture of the Messiah because he's vigilant. He says, the lion sleeps with open eyes. And always watches. Well, same it is with our Lord. So the lion of the tribe of Judah, and then he describes as well, if you notice there in verse 5, the root of David. Now this is very interesting. Because a very common messianic title known from the Old Testament was to call the Messiah the son of David. Because God promised King David, centuries before the Messiah was born, that the Messiah would come from David's lineage. Therefore, he's known as the son of David. But what's interesting is, not only is the Messiah the son of David, but he is also the root of David. In other words, he's the source and the issue of David, both of them. So he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's the root of David. And finally, if you notice, it's amazing in verse 5 how it says, he has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose the seven seals. In other words, this worthiness that he has to open the scroll, not only is it something that he has inherent within himself, it is also something which he has achieved. And he achieved it, how? 
Well, you'll see here. Look at verse 6. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, because of the elder's announcement, John turns and he looks, and he's expecting to see what? He's expecting to see a lion, don't you think? Isn't that what the elder told him you'd see? Look, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. This, this is who's word that opened the scroll. John turns and he looks, and he doesn't see the lion of the tribe of Judah, no. He sees a lamb instead. And what's amazing about this lamb is, is first of all, John uses... The specific word for a little lamb. He uses the diminutive term. Look, this isn't even like a studly lamb. This is a little lamb, a delicate lamb. And the lamb is presented in a way that's both sympathetic and powerful. I mean, he's living. Look at it there. It's not like he saw the sacrificed carcass of a lamb. No, look at it there, verse 6. In the midst of the throne, the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb. It's standing. It's not dead. It's not dead as if it's in sacrifice. Yet it still has the marks of sacrifice upon him because it says, as though it had been slain. It's amazing, isn't it? When men want symbols of power, they conjure up ferocious beasts and birds of prey such as those that represent nations or sports teams. But the representative of the kingdom of God is a lamb. Think about it. You're not going to find a professional football team called the Lambs. Or even this specifically, the Little Lambs. You know, that's what you call the, 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 the specific group in the preschool class, right? We've got the bluebirds and we've got the Little Lambs. And that's, that's what you use that for. No, the king of God, God is not afraid. God is not hesitant. He displays himself as a lamb, a little lamb, representing humility and gentleness and sacrificial love. And the lamb looks as though it had been slain. Now, it's hard to describe exactly what John saw, but this lamb had the marks of sacrifice on it. Now, remember this, because the coming judgment beginning in Revelation chapter 6, is dictated and administered by a lamb who already offered a way of escape for that judgment by his own sacrifice. This judgment that's going to come upon the world beginning in Revelation chapter 6, it comes upon a world that hates the lamb and all that he stands for and rejected the offer of salvation that came from the lamb's self-sacrifice. That lamb, it looked as if it had been slain. The idea behind those words is that the sacrifice of that lamb is perpetually fresh and current before God the Father. I want you to think about that for a moment. The sacrificial work of Jesus is perpetually fresh and current before God the Father. There's nothing stale or outworn in the work of Jesus on the cross. Thousands of years later, it's just as fresh as the day he died on the cross. And might I say, too, that that atoning sacrifice does not need to be repeated or replicated in ceremonies of any kind. It stands eternally fresh before his throne. As far as God is concerned, it's the day of Calvary right now. The lamb is before him as if it had been slain. Adam Clark says on these words, as it had been slain, he says it means as if now in the act of being offered. This is very remarkable. So important is the sacrificial offering of Christ in the sight of God that he is still represented as being in the very act of pouring out his blood for the offenses of man. This gives great advantage to faith when any soul comes to the throne of grace He finds a sacrifice there provided for him to offer to God. Thus, all succeeding generations shall find that they have the continual sacrifice ready and the newly shed blood to offer. It's fresh. It's never stale. Lamb, as if it had been slain. 
That's not the only description of the lamb in verse 6. It also says that it was having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, even though the marks of the lamb's sacrifice are evident, the lamb is not presented as an object of pity. You wouldn't look at this lamb, and John didn't, and say, Oh, poor little lamb. Look at it, it's, it's cut, it has the marks of sacrifice upon it. No, not at all. Because this lamb also has seven horns and seven eyes. Now, what's the picture of that? Again, let's remember, very consistent biblical imagery used here. The horn is always used as a, a representation of power, of strength. I mean, it comes from a very not very difficult idea to understand. You know, if you've got an ox and you're a farmer, you know what the business end of that animal is, right? It's the horns. You know that when that animal wants to express its power, its force, its authority, it does it through its horns. So the horn is a very consistent biblical picture of, of a strength, of power. And then the eyes. Well, again, the eyes... Speak of knowledge, of understanding. And it's as if the seven spirits of God, the, in other words, the Holy Spirit is, is Jesus' conduit for knowledge on this earth, running across the whole earth and communicating under this, uh, under, unto Jesus. Now, seven, again, so often in the scriptures, is this picture of perfection or completeness. Nothing lacking. When you have a seven, you're not missing anything. So notice this. This lamb bears the marks of omnipotence, seven horns. It's all-powerful. He has the marks of omniscience, seven eyes, all-seeing, all-understanding. And so what a figure, a slain lamb who bears the marks of omniscience and omnipotence. So this lamb, if you notice, verse 7, then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So here you have the lamb coming and taking the scroll. Now, I wonder, I wonder if John did not actually see a lamb in the scene he's describing. In whatever way he saw this spiritually or with his natural eye or whatever, we're not really sure, but in whatever way he saw this, I'd like to suggest to you something, and it's no more than a suggestion. You I'm reading something into the text here, but it occurs to me that it may have happened this way. That John simply saw Jesus Christ approaching the throne of God. Now, he still had the marks of his sacrifice on him, the, the nail wounds in his hands, and, and perhaps the, the, the bloody scars upon his head from the crown of thorns and the beatings he endured and, and the, the gash in his sides and such. And that's why he says a lamb as if he'd been slain. But John remembered very well what he heard John the Baptist say when, when he first saw Jesus. And that's, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now John sees Jesus saying, that's the Lamb of God, he says. It's a lamb. And representing his perfection in, in power, his perfection in wisdom and knowledge. We don't know how exactly, but this lamb goes up to the throne of God and it takes the scroll. Notice what happens here beginning at verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. Now, when the Lamb takes the scroll, the response is immediate. First of all, you have these angels, these glorious cherubim, these living creatures that surround the throne of God and are unceasing in their worship of the Lord day and night. When they see the Lamb taking this scroll, they break out into praise. Redeemed man also does because the elders fell down before the Lamb. The highest of the angels, the representatives of all redeemed humanity, they immediately break into worship when the Lamb comes and takes the scroll. If you notice here in verse 8, it says that they fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp. Now, this is the exact scriptural passage where we get the idea of people having harps in heaven. 
So all those cornball cartoons that you've seen throughout the years of some guy with wings and a halo carrying around a little harp, this is where they get it from. Now, as far as we know, you know, John could have been seeing guitars, but the only word he had to describe it was a harp. I don't know, it's some kind of stringed instrument that they had. I think it's interesting that there are musical instruments in heaven. I mean, there are. God likes music. Music isn't the devil's property, it's God's. And in heaven, worship is accompanied with music. Now, we don't have a very large description of the kind of orchestra they have in heaven. The only musical instruments that we're specifically told of is trumpets and harps. i got to think there's going to be more than that, but that's what we're told of specifically. So they each have harps. Now, what I think is also very interesting here is it says each having a harp. Every one of them. You know, what would that be like here if we... uh, Each one, each worshiper of God coming in here, we each gave you a a musical instrument. Well, it would would not sound like heaven. Let me put it that way, right? (laughs) But in heaven, it will sound like heaven. So for every time, you know, you've heard that virtuoso performance and that that, that person who can express their heart of worship, their their heart of praise or passion or, or ministry unto God through music, and you go, oh, if I only had that ability. You will. You'll have it in heaven. Now notice what else they have here in verse 8. It says, And golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. With their golden bowls full of incense, the elders symbolically present the prayers of the saints. Now it's important to point out that they are not interceding for the saints. They're not acting as mediators for God's people. No, not at all. The Bible tells us that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That's in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. The elders are not praying for God's people. They're bringing the prayers of God's people unto God. And since they represent all the people of God, this is just the, the, the prayers of God's people coming unto the Lord. I think the picture is so marvelous, don't you? First of all, look how precious the Lord thinks our prayers are. He puts them in golden bowls. That's what he does with them. Golden bowls. And he regards them as sweet-smelling incense. Now this figure comes from the tabernacle in the Old Testament. It also comes from Psalm 141, verse 2, which says, Let my prayer be set before you as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. You see, incense has a pleasing aroma, doesn't it? And so God says, this is how pleasing the prayers of my people are to me. When you light incense, and especially the kind that they would use back then, you can see the smoke sort of ascend up to heaven. Well, that was the idea. Our prayers ascend up to heaven. Do you know what I really like about the connection between incense and it being a, a picture or a, a representation of our prayers, is that you've got to have some fire or the incense won't work. Isn't that true of our prayers? You've got to have some fire. You know, how, how dreadful it is when our prayers are so cold. That's like a, a golden bowl full of incense, but where's the fire? Lord, put some fire in our hearts. Make us hot towards you, not lukewarm, not cold. Give us some heat towards you so that our prayers can be offered up to you like sweet-smelling incense having the fire in them. Look at what these glorious creatures do, beginning here at verse 9, where we read, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Now there's something we know about this song in verse 9. That it's not the angels, it's not the living creatures singing this song. Because these are words that do not properly belong in the mouth of an angel. 
The angels don't say, you have redeemed us to God, because we never hear of the angels being redeemed. The, the angels certainly not were, redeemed, were not redeemed out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And nowhere does the Bible say that the angels will be kings and priests to God or that they shall reign on the earth. No, those things are all property of believers. As they sing this song, the elders, notice what it says about the song, that it's what? That it's a new song. This has in mind one of two things or perhaps both things at the same time. First of all, a new song was considered to be an excellent song. That was one way in the ancient way of speaking that they would describe a song that was really excellent. It was a new song. But secondly, it's also new because of the matter to it. The angels cannot sing this song, so it's a new song in the mouth of God's redeemed. The the Old Testament saints could not sing this song until the work of Jesus was finished on the cross because it deals with his redemption by his blood. There's one very ancient commentator on the book of Revelation uh, wrote, a man named Victorinus. He says, it's a new thing that the Son of God should become man. It's a new thing to ascend into heavens with the body. It's a new thing to give remission of sins to men. It's a new thing for men to be sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's a new thing to receive the priesthood of sacred observance and to look for a kingdom of unbounded promise. So because of these incredible new mercies, they sing a new song. And what is their song? Look at it there in verse 9. It begins, you are worthy. You know what is amazing about this is that those are the exact words very well known in the political life of the Roman Empire. If I say a phrase, you'll know exactly what I mean. Hail to the chief. We reckon that phrase is used as a, as a term of dignity towards the president. There's a song, you know, dun, dun, da, da, whatever. It has that whole thing, hail to the chief. Yes, it, that belongs to the president, right? You, you, you know you're not recognizing the dog catcher when hail to the chief is around. Well, those words, you are worthy reflected something from Roman political life. In the days of the Apostle John, Roman emperors were celebrated upon their arrival with a Latin expression, and it doesn't mean hail to the chief, it's the Latin expression vera dignus, which means you are worthy. So here the true emperor, the true ruler of the world is honored. You're worthy. And for what? Look at what it says. You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. In this praise uh, from this chapter, it's different from the praise of Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Keep your mind right there, but turn your page back to Revelation chapter 4 and look at the song that they sing in verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord. Okay, sounds familiar, but look at the rest. To receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. What's the emphasis of the declaration of praise in Revelation chapter 4? God as creator. What's the emphasis in the declaration of praise in Revelation chapter 5? God as redeemer. And this song, well, it honors the price of redemption because it says, for you were slain. It honors the worker of redemption. It says, you have redeemed us. It honors the destination of redemption. It says, you have redeemed us to God. The song honors the payment of redemption when it says, by your blood. It honors the scope of redemption when it says, every tribe and every tongue and people and nation. It honors the length of redemption when it says that he's made us kings and priests to our God and it honors the result of redemption by saying, and we shall reign on the earth. It's all about the redeeming work of God. By the way, it also tells us about our glorious standing before the Lord, isn't it? Verse 10, and has made us kings and priests to our God. Isn't it beautiful? We're kings because of our royal birth, because of our destiny to reign with Jesus. And we're priests. 
you believe that? We're priests. I'm looking at a room full of priests right now. The priesthood belongs to us because we need no mediator other than Jesus Christ. Friends, let me tell you, I am your pastor, but I am not your priest. I cannot stand between you and God as a mediator. No, you don't need any other mediator other than Jesus Christ. He is your mediator. What I want to do continually is draw you to Jesus, is draw you to Jesus, is point you to Jesus. He's the mediator. So this great, tremendous song, a celebration. Look at it, how it continues on here in verse 11. And then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. It's amazing that the, the angels and the elders fell down before the Lamb together. But it seems that only the elders sang this great song of the redeemed in verses 9 and 10. But, but, but now the voice of many angels around the throne rises up in praise to the great Redeemer. I think it's interesting, again, if we want to compare the worship of Revelation chapter 4 with the worship of Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 4, the angels prompted the elders into worship. Here, the song of the elders prompts the angels into worship. Isn't that a wonderful cycle in heaven? The, the, the angels and the elders encourage one another to more and more praise. I think it should be that way after that same pattern among God's people right now. You know, maybe this week you, you, you come here, oh, and your heart is so full of praise. Well, fine, then you just praise God with everything you have, and, and other people should take and follow after your pattern. You know, that person next to you, they came, man, they had a hard day. They're distracted, they're grumpy, but they see you worshiping God. And you know what? It says, well, you know what? I should worship God too. They say, look, this person seems to have so much to praise God for. I need to help them out. I'll, I'll start worshiping with them, right alongside with them. And then you know how it's going to be next week. Next week, the, the roles will be reversed, right? You're going to be all grumpy. The person next to you, well, they're going to have that heart filled with praise. Well, that's how it should be. We should let that fire of praise burn among us and, and, and light each other on fire in, in worship. It's a glorious, glorious thing. So here we have it. There they are, and they, they have it. And look at the number of them. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Obviously, it's not representing it. It's just saying an innumerable company of angels. And what do they worship? They say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Now, I want you to notice, in this song, which we're specifically told that the angels sing, the angels do not offer praise for their redemption, do they? Because they aren't redeemed. The angels, to the best of our knowledge, are not subjects of this redemption, but they're very careful observers of it. The Bible says that, that we are a school for angels. God has them looking in on us. I mean, right now, angelic beings are looking at us and learning about this great redemption that Jesus Christ has wrought, and God is teaching the angels through us. Sometimes I wonder what kind of lessons they're learning. <laughs> now, sometimes you wonder if God didn't say, okay, now, let me show you the lesson in what not to do <laughs> and how it shouldn't work, but let's hope those are... Few and far between, no, quite the contrary, it should be lessons that this is how it should be among God's people. You see, the, the angels can clearly see the greatness of God's work in redeeming fallen man. Now, I think sometimes they see it more clearly than we do. I mean, they probably see us with a greater spiritual clarity than we see ourselves. I mean, when an angel looks at you, they can probably size you up and see how fallen you really are. And they know the greatness of the glory of God, don't they? And they see the distance between the two. You and I probably don't see it for what it is in reality. We just have a glimmer of it. But the angels can probably see it with a clarity that you and I can't approach. And so they see the greatness of God's glory, and they see the depths of our fallenness, and he says, but you redeemed them? I'm blown away. It's a constant, a constant lesson to them. So when they see it, what do they do? 
Look at it here. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. It's as if they can't stop praising Jesus when they see the greatness of the work that he's done in us. Well, praise can be contagious, can't it? So here it catches on again in a never-ending cycle, verse 13. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lived forever and ever. John couldn't be any more complete in his description. Truly, this is every creature in heaven and on the earth, under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, in other words, everything. Every created being is coming and worshiping. Worshiping who? Him who sits on the throne, that's a reference to God the Father, and to the Lamb forever and ever. Friends, let me ask you just, just a right up front question here. How could anybody read this verse and doubt the deity of Jesus Christ? Let me tell you this. If Jesus Christ is not God, then this is gross idolatry. Then this is worshiping the creature as if it were the creator. But of course, we know he is the creator. No, no, my friends. We need to see that this is worship of Jesus as God. Well, Charles Spurgeon said, he said, Depend upon it, my hearers. You will never go to heaven unless you are prepared to worship Jesus Christ as God. They are all doing it there, and you will have to come to it. And if you entertain the notion that he is a mere man or that he's anything less than God, I'm afraid that you will have to begin at the beginning and learn what true religion means. You have a poor foundation to rest upon. I could not trust my soul with a mere man or believe in an atonement made by a mere man. I must see God himself putting his hand to so gigantic a work. So they worship him. And they worship him with everything. Look at it here, verse 14. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Now, what's interesting about this It says that they fell down and worshipped him. Actually, the the ancient Greek word there that we translate worshipped, and it's a commonly used ancient Greek word for worship in the New Testament, means literally to prostrate or to lay before another in complete submission. Now, it doesn't mean that that's what they would do all the time in their worship. But that's what the word comes from. It comes from the idea of somebody completely laying themselves out before a superior. In other words, let's say you're a king, and I'm a soldier captured in battle, and I was on the army fighting against you. And I know I need mercy. I know I can only appeal for mercy. I know I need to show you the highest respect. So what do I do? Not only do I get down on my knees before you, but that's just the transition place. I just get down on my knees because I can't get down on my face quick enough. And what I do is I lay out flat before you with my face to the ground and my neck bared before you. And I say, I'm totally at your disposal. If you want to kill me, you could do it like this because I'm totally helpless before you. I can't get up. I can't fight back. My neck is bared before you. I can't even see because my face is towards the ground. See, that that expresses complete submission, right? It's a complete recognition that you're worthy and I have to submit before you completely. Now, it's wrong to think that whenever the Bible says worship, it means that everybody laid down on their face. I'm sure sometimes they did, but no, more so they borrowed that figure, right? That attitude of complete surrender, of complete submission. But if there's any place where it may mean that they actually did get down on their face, I think this could be it, because it says they fell down and laid out before him. You could translate it that way. The idea is first is that they fell down on their knees, and then bowing down, they touched the earth with their forehead. That's the idea behind this ancient word for worship. Total submission. Total worship. See, friends, that is what real worship is about. 
It's not primarily about singing songs. Now, singing songs can be a great way to bring you to that place. But if all it remains in your heart is singing songs, and you never come to that place where in your heart, if not with your body, it has to be in your heart, you bow down before God, and as it were, you bear your neck before him and say, whatever you will with me, Lord, I am totally surrendered, totally submitted to you. And I do it not just because you've defeated me. I do it because you're worthy of it. You are worthy of it. I mean, you deserve this, and I deserve to be in this place of total submission and surrender. This is right. This isn't a situation that I'm aching to get away from or I'm thinking when I can get the advantage over you. No. I said, this is how it should be. Me in this attitude of total submission, total surrender before you. And how long did it go? Well, they worshipped him who lives forever and ever. This living God reigns eternally. The Caesars, they come and go. Presidents come and go. Nations and empires come and go. But the Lord God lives forever and ever and is ever worthy of our praise. Now, it's easy to say, you know what? If I could see this, I know I would worship and surrender and submit to God this way. I know I would. And maybe you're waiting, thinking in your mind, well, I'll wait until I do see it. That's when I'll worship and surrender and submit. No, the fact of the matter is, this scene is going on right now. This is reality in heaven. And we need to respond to it now and realize that now in this time of our life is the time to surrender and submit to God, to, as it were, lay ourselves out before Him. Friends, what do you need to lay out before God? What place of submission do you need to to yield unto Him? That's what it means. First down on your knees, then laid out before him in total surrender. Lord, do whatever you will with me, and I'm totally satisfied in being in that place because I know it's the right place. May God build in each one of us that heart, and let's pray that he would do it. Father, when we see this heavenly scene in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, it's almost more than we can really take in. But Lord, we believe. Indeed, Lord, we trust that just as much as we sort of ascend up to heaven when we pray. Lord, we believe that there's a sense in which we bring heaven down to us when we worship you. Father, I pray that you give us a greater foundation, a greater understanding of what it means when we worship you, and that it would go so far beyond the singing of songs. It would come to the place where it is, the yielding, and the satisfaction in yielding our lives, our soul, our sacred honor, everything that we are unto you. Because you are worthy of it, Lord, and you reign forever and ever. Help us to see it and live like it. In Jesus' name, amen.